0: One night, I remember very well, I was asleep in my bed, and then I see a light above my head. Three bullets has came just above my head, and the curtain was just burned. The bullets were embedded in the wall in front of me. And if I have gone straight up... You'd prob- sat up? Yeah, then the second bullet or the third bullet would be on my head.
1: From Aura Studios... This is The Line of Fire, with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war and the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. My guest today is an Emmy and Robert F. Kennedy award-winning Iraqi journalist and documentary producer. Mace Al-Bayar has covered her home country and events in the region since the 2003 invasion of Iraq. In 2019, Mace was the recipient of the Rory Peck Martin Adler Prize for her significant contribution to news gathering. Mace, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Mace, full disclosure for our listeners – we have worked with each other. We've made two documentaries with each other, which means that you have also become one of my dearest friends. Thank you very much, Ramita. And you, Mace, um, one of the people I've worked with who has, who makes me laugh the most on the job, um, which is an absolute joy. I love working with you, as you know. I guess you could say you're my work wife. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: If anything, I just learned from you. But I'm going to take you way back. Mm
0: -hmm. Mace, how did you end up in journalism? After 2003, just after the invasion of Iraq, a friend of mine actually approached me and told me that uh, one of the American networks in Baghdad, they needed a translator to help them, only for a day. And I agreed to do that job. And I was really bad. To start with, It it was horrible. How were you bad? I didn't know any names of any ministers. I did not have a clue of where most of the provinces were in Iraq. So I was literally running like a headless chicken in the office. And um, my boss was hearing, I just just heard him shouting from his room saying, Can you fire this idiot? (laughs) (laughs) We can't have her working here. Who brought her? When I'm coming back, I don't want to see her face ever again. <laughs> and luckily, um, the next day, he actually had um, to start his holiday. And my colleagues were kind enough uh, to not pass the note to the, um, to the new bureau chief. And I continued. But my previous boss, like his words really stuck in my head. And I felt like I must do something about that. I must change. And I started really working hard to prove myself. And after that, it was just progressing. Uh, in the beginning, I agreed only to work in the office. I was too scared to even go in the streets uh, because at that time, the hostility in the streets were becoming um, quite obvious. And I start hearing more and more incidents of killing uh, local journalists. So I just was saying, like, I'm just going to accept to do the work just in inside the office. And they told me, You know what? Can you just go for one time with a cameraman outside and just translate outside? And I said, Okay, if it's just gonna be one off incident, I'm happy to do that and I did it. But after that I was like, What? Why am I stuck in the office? Is actually this is what I really like to do.
1: So in a way you ended up becoming a journalist by accident, because of historical events in your country?
0: Yes. But if I go back in time, actually, when I was a child, I remember myself um, standing in the front of the mirror and holding my toothbrush and pretending that I am a correspondent for uh, Reuters. But I never thought, like, a- after that incident, I never thought that actually this is something I could achieve. Because I knew that if I'm going to be a journalist under Saddam regime, then there's nothing to cover. So... I kind not of have buried this thought. And then after the invasion, things change. So it was a secret
1: ambition that could only be realized after the invasion. Yeah. Do you think if the invasion hadn't happened, you would still be a journalist? No. No. How would your life have panned out?
0: I was doing my master's in Baghdad University uh, in French literature. So my life was all about French literature symphonies. Um, I have a big library of books that I really enjoyed. Like, And I thought that I'm going to be a teacher, a French teacher. That was my dream. Um, because I had to play a safe dream that has nothing to do with politics because of my family background in, in Iraq. Uh, so I had to build a very safe and comfortable life that is not gonna put me in danger and put me again in a position where I have to confront Saddam Hussein again. Tell me about your
1: family background in Iraq.
0: Um, my dad was my dad was a communist, and he's from a Shia elite family, um, which made us in a lot of trouble. Um, Because Saddam Hussein was a
1: Sunni. Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. Minorities um, in control. The divide between Sunnis and Shias, the two main sects in Islam, happened after the death of their prophet Muhammad in 632 AD, over a disagreement on who should be his successor. Over 85% of the world's Muslims are Sunnis, but in Iraq, the Shias are in the majority.
0: Uh, Just before the Iraqi-Iranian War, they actually started to deport most of the elite Shia families and freeze their assets. My family were one of those people, and we ended up being kicked out from the country when I was six months old.
1: What year was that?
0: That was in 1978. So uh, from that time, we had no Iraqi citizenship. We had fake Lebanese passports. And we were moving around with um, fake identity. And why did you have fake
1: Lebanese passports?
0: Because I didn't have any Iraqi passport. You have no Iraqi citizenship and we didn't want to apply for any asylum anywhere in Europe or anywhere else. So we had to create a new new life.
1: So you, you were a stateless family. So Saddam kicked out your family in 1978. Yes. And then you were stateless. And why... Didn't your family want to seek asylum in Europe?
0: My dad was a dreamer. He almost felt that one day this, is, this nightmare is going to end. So he wanted to be close to home so he can run back home. And he kept dreaming about it for most of his life. We stayed, we stayed between Lebanon and Syria at that time because there was as well a war in, in Lebanon with Israel. Uh, in the eighties, so we were going back and forth between Lebanon and Syria. But he wished that he's gonna go back home as soon as he's gonna get his citizens citizenship back. He's gonna go back home, and and indeed that will happened. Sadly, it happened just before the first Gulf War, and um, we got we got a pardon from Saddam Hussein, giving us our citizenship back. We flew back to Baghdad. And, and that was one of the most stupid mistakes that we ever did in our life. Um, why,
1: on what grounds did Saddam kick your father, you and your father, out of Iraq?
0: At that time, the Saddam said that um, most of these Shia elite families, they actually, they are Iranian dissidents. So they should go back to Iran. They are no longer Iraqis. And he was preparing for the war with Iran, so he wanted to make sure that um, m- most of these uh, these families in in Iraq should leave because once the Iranians they start fighting with with Iraq, these people will be a threat. In
1: September 1980, Saddam Hussein launched an invasion on neighboring Iran, a country which was still reeling from a revolution. Saddam feared Iran's new Shia establishment would embolden his country's disenfranchised Shia majority. He'd imagined a quick, easy victory over a country in chaos. He was wrong. The Iran-Iraq war lasted for eight years, ending in a stalemate and leaving a million dead.
0: Once he captured most of these elite Shia families who have a lot of money, he wanted to give that money to the Sunnis who were supporting him. So instead of, you know, getting money from somewhere else, we might as well use the money from his enemy to fund his allies. And that's what exactly he did.
1: And tell me about when your family returned to Iraq and why you think this was a stupid mistake. When was it exactly? And why did Saddam Hussein pardon your father?
0: Saddam pardoned my father, not only my father, I mean, he, he pardoned tens of thousands, like my, my family. But at that time, the war has ended with Iran. So um, he, he thought, might as well bring my, bring my enemies back home so I can keep an eye on them. And that's exactly what he did, which my family did not understand and did not think about it. So um, we, got, we saw in, in a newspaper where we saw that our name was in the pardon list by Saddam Hussein and we can now get our citizenship back. We went to the Iraqi embassy and got our passports for the first time and went back to Iraq. And and I remember was having conversations with my family saying, is that not the same person who actually stripped us from everything? Why do you think that you should trust him now? And they said, well, things change. It's time for us to go back home to be, for once, Iraqis for real. And my, my, my father and my, my mother were desperate to go back to their big families and, and just be with them again. But sadly, it was not the case. We ended up going back and we were under um, um, severe monitorship by by Saddam regime so we were again trapped in the country we couldn't leave and even their promise to give us our assets back were fake Uh, we ended up again being stuck and uh, most of our assets were frozen again and um, yeah that was that was a massive mistake for my family
1: And what happened during the first Gulf War? How did that affect you and your family?
0: My family were quite relieved about the first Gulf War. Again, they felt that this is going to change their life. They had hope that the Americans will do it right this time and they will get rid of Sudan. So your family,
1: like many Iraqis, wanted the Americans
0: to help to oust Saddam. They wanted anyone to help to oust Saddam. They could even wish that the devil would come in and get rid of Saddam. It was that bad. So they were very desperate. When you're really desperate, it doesn't matter what the face of your rescuer. That is exactly what they wanted. And maybe it was just wishful thinking more than anything else.
1: In 1990... Two years after the end of the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam Hussein invaded another neighbour, this time oil-rich Kuwait. In response, the United States led a coalition of 35 nations in an offensive against Iraq. It was the largest military alliance since World War II. For 42 days and nights, Operation Desert Storm subjected Iraq to one of the most intensive air bombardments in military history. Saddam was easily defeated. So how did they feel at the end of the first Gulf War?
0: Livid. They thought that finally, this war is going to change their lives. What, all what happened is that you, you see more destruction, you see more orphans, you see more loss. The city is completely destroyed. You barely have electricity. You don't have water. You don't even have the basic things that you could wish for. So it's just like, you know, it's almost like having a guest who thinks that he's just going to cheer you up in a night and all of what they do is just make a huge mess and leave. And they don't even bother to tidy up. So imagine, imagine the frustration of millions of people at that time. That's what exactly happened. I lived the first Gulf War. I've seen death every single day. As soon as I hear the sirens, I know that someone is going to die. So I had that habit of like having tears running on my cheeks as soon as I I hear the sirens. But I thought like from the first Gulf War that when I survived it, there's nothing going to be worse than that. But actually the second Gulf War was hell.
1: The 2003 US invasion of Iraq was based on a lie that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Once the Americans, with the help of the Brits and other allies, had toppled Saddam's government, they stayed on to help nation-building, with catastrophic results. When the Iraqi army was disbanded, hundreds of thousands of Sunni men lost their jobs overnight. And as the long-persecuted Shia majority rose to power sectarian divisions exploded. So followed insurgencies and war, empowering terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. The U.S. finally withdrew after eight years. Nearly half a million Iraqis were killed by the war and its side effects. And so what was it like in 2003
0: when the Americans invaded? Every single night. As soon as it's like 7pm, the sirens goes all around the city and then everyone goes home and runs home, turn off the lights and then the bombing starts all night. What happens to us is that as soon as we, we hear the sirens, me and my dad, we go on the roof of our house and keep watching. It was like Hollywood. It's, you know, one bombing after the other, and you don't even hear screams, you hear nothing. And Saddam at that time had this crazy idea of burning tires all around the city. So what happened is that Your day and night become the same. You just see red, red clouds, kind of really dark maroon red. And if you don't see your watch, you wouldn't even know what time is it, if it's morning or night. So imagine with that scene and with the sounds and you hearing the sirens and you don't see anyone in the streets. No one exists. I don't know if that is not hell, because for, for me I felt like, can I get out of this? Is that even possible? And I felt I was trapped.
1: Were you working as a journalist at this point?
0: No. No. Um, at that time I was just finishing my masters um, at Baghdad University, I was doing my masters in French Literature. So I was just graduating from my university, and my master's thesis was on French symphonies. So I had a completely different dream at that time. And actually, that war made me hate music so badly. I couldn't listen to any symphony after, after that invasion, because I always associate it in my, in my head with the sound of bombing now.
1: So then tell me what it was like when you're living through this war and you started working as a journalist. Did it make it easier to cope with what was happening around you?
0: No, it did not make me easy to cope because I started to learn more of what's happening and how, how, how much brutality was going around me. It's a different thing when you see from the roof of your house a bombing and when you actually work as a journalist and go in the field and meet these families and ask them questions. So it's it's completely different. There's no comparison between those two. What's
1: it like reporting from your own country? You lived and worked as a journalist in Iraq from 2003 to 2006. So in those three years, you were living the war and you were reporting the war. Is it different from reporting from other countries?
0: Yes, it's different. Because in Iraq, people marry from each other's families. And you know, it's it's not a city that it's open to the world. So most of the time you're going to end up bumping into a family, family member, or could be a friend, or could be a neighbor, or a friend of a neighbor. And I was always anxious if I ever going to have to report something on my own family. And that anxiety never gone when I'm, whenever I am reporting on something on Iraq. Does that mean it's harder to be detached? It's harder to be
1: unbiased in a way?
0: It is harder. Definitely, it is harder. You have a common thing with these people. They, they are, they are, they, they know you. They, they speak the same language, the same accent that I speak at home. Um, they like the same food that I like. It's, it's just home. It's, it's, I think it's, it's. It's really difficult, actually, to do because that because there's
1: such a strong emotional attachment.
0: There is a very strong emotional attachment. Um, And as I said, there is always fear of having a family to report on a family matter.
1: So you're living in fear Mm -hmm. that the war is creeping towards you. You're living in fear that it's going to one day touch you and your family. Did it get close?
0: After the invasion, I felt like the circle of death was getting smaller and smaller. And the incidents I used to hear about before, that it would be someone in a far city from us has been kidnapped or killed. That circle start to shrink and it starts to become closer to our family. And that happened actually in 2007. Um, my father was kidnapped by um, the Shia militia. And they kidnapped him uh, actually by mistake. Because he was driving in a Sunni neighborhood, and then they stopped him, and dragged him out of his car, and they were all of that time they were interrogating him, asking him whether he's Shia or Sunni. And luckily, he was he was kidnapped by a Shia militia, and he's Shia. So when they knew that um, he's he's from the same sector, he they actually uh, let him go, and they apologized to him. And and. These incidents were frequently happening. Actually, our neighbor next door as well, um, he was assassinated at his doorstep, which is next to us. And his wife was just delivered a baby. And uh, sadly, that baby is just grown an orphan. And, And I was just really scared that this could be me. I might see my father being killed at our doorstep or it could be the other way around. How long was your father held for? He was held for a couple of hours, but it was just it was luck um, because they were Al Qaeda at that time, and they were as well the Shia militia, and luck and both were kidnapping the other sector. So thank God, um, at that time, it was the Shia militia kidnapping my dad. If it was Al Qaeda, my dad would be gone. How did
1: your family cope with that? How did your father cope with what happened to him?
0: denial they have to live with denial that this is just a mistake this is not going to happen again and we will survive but this is how you live when you are in a war zone you live in denial i was thinking of myself like a hero in a film that i can't i can't die when i'm dead this film is going to be over and this is gonna be a really bad film if it's gonna be over like that. So I was having that dream that this is just this is just a film. I can't die. I won't die. But some people around me sadly will, and they did.
1: And tell me about the people you lost along the way.
0: There is one guy, actually, I can't raise him from my, my mind. I was working in Alhambra Hotel. My, the TV channel I was working with, they were based in Alhamra Hotel in Baghdad, in central Baghdad. And this guy was a, a friend of mine that I formed a friendship just by meeting him in, in the lobby of the hotel. And he was a journalist and he was working for another network. And he um, he just got married and his wife um, had a twin. And I met him in, in the lobby and he said to me, Mace, I, I think, I feel I'm going to die. And I kept saying, "What? why do you think like that? I mean, there's nothing. And he said, no, I have that feeling that I'm going to die. So I'm just going to collect my salary at the end of this month. And I'm going to take the ferry to Dubai with my wife and children, and I'm just going to leave. And I said, Don't be silly. This is nothing. I know it's, you know, we hear a lot of stories about what's happening around us, but this is not going to happen to us. I mean, I was trying to convince him that he's probably another hero like my film. And he said, I don't know. I really don't feel good about it. Two days later, while I was sitting in my office, and I was translating then the headlines of the news. I see his picture on, on TV.
1: Oh, darling. <sighs> yeah.
0: He was beheaded.
1: What astounds me about you is that you were living it. You weren't like our colleagues who were visitors. It was your country and you were living through the war. Mm-hmm. And yet you continued. And you continue now. Your father was kidnapped by sheer militias. You and I have spent many years investigating the sheer militias your absolute bravery and determination. What was it in you that, you know, you're clearly still so affected by the execution of your friend? What was it in you, do you think, that drove you on?
0: I mean when I left Iraq in I left Iraq in two thousand and six When I left Iraq, I wanted to shut the door. I wanted to say never again. I'm going to have a simple life in London. I'm going to live my life for once without hearing any sirens. Being able to walk with high heels like everybody else. You know, my, my main dilemma would be where would I go in the weekend? And how can I spend my Saturday night? But I couldn't live with that. I was feeling guilty. I was feeling guilty for all of the people I left behind. And I wanted to do something. And I knew I cannot bring bring all of these people back, but I have to do something. Did your friend's death
1: and hearing about it in that way did it change anything for you?
0: It changed a lot. It changed a lot. It just made me feel that this is no longer a movie. This is real. And you have one shot. So you have to live your life as if you were going to die tomorrow. That's what really changed in me. Did it change your work? Yes. It made me angrier. It made me feel that I have to speak up even more. Despite that, I have a lot of fear, but I have to overcome it. I learned to to feel comfortable in being uncomfortable. This is what I learned through all of the wars I have gone through, through everything I have seen. I learned to feel my comfort zone, and whenever I step out of it, I feel myself. And this is how I break my fear, by just stepping out of my comfort zone, and being comfortable in, inside, um, inside the new, the new norm. This is how I deal with it now. And did this execution of your friend make you more scared? At that time, yes. I mean, I was I was 26 uh, when I. Uh, when it happened, and that was that was not even the main incident that changed my life, but it was one of too many incidents that actually changed my life.
1: Were you ever able, Mace, to go home after a day's work and leave the wars behind, and leave the war behind, leave the stories behind?
0: Every single day I was leaving work, I was even more scared because I was bringing trouble to my home. The journey from my office to home was even worse than the actual day of work. In what way? At that time, there were a lot of local journalists who've been followed and killed. So, my driver was driving me home and we all have to look back and forth behind us to see if we were monitored. And, and the journey usually takes about 20 minutes to my home, but actually was it taking about more than a, an hour because I was, have, I have to maneuver and take different routes in order to go back home. And I was feeling really guilty that if I'm, and I'm going to ever endanger my family for the things I am doing right now. Um, I couldn't leave anything behind. It's, it's, it's your lifestyle. If you're not going to talk about work, you're going to talk about the neighbor who just got shot. You're going to talk about your cousin who just disappeared. You're going to talk about um, your father who just got kidnapped. So, no, it was, there was no, no weekend. There's nothing called a weekend. You never let your hair down. You never forget about where you are and what you're doing.
1: It's Ramita Navai here, and thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful, but important. As I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their personal stories. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts from. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series and I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. And how how was it then walking into the office and, and working with your colleagues who weren't Iraqis and weren't living in Iraq?
0: We had kind of two separate lives, so we had the Iraqi colleagues i was working with which we promised each other that we would never invite each other to each other's house so they wouldn't know where we live why just in case anyone got caught and if they ever tortured they will genuinely not know where we are in case one of your colleagues got kidnapped because
1: iraqi journalists then were targeted and killed at an alarming rate and they were being kidnapped
0: Yes, at that time there were a lot of Iraqi j- journalists who have been kidnapped and beheaded. Uh, so we decided between us as colleagues that we will never tell about each other's location. So then if anyone get captured, um, they would not tell any militia or um, the Qaeda at that time where we are. And, um, and then we will be safe. And we also, we used to laugh and discuss about what was going to happen to us. And each one of us would have a different way of killing themselves if they'd ever been caught by Al-Qaeda at that time. Was it a joke or was there any seriousness in it? No, it wasn't a joke. No, we don't joke like these things. It's in a way, it's always, you know, a black humor joke mm. that is actually because we can't be very serious about it. But we know that this is gonna happen if someone of us get caught. that you had planned
1: s- your suicide.
0: Yes, we would plan our own suicide if we ever get caught by any militia. Uh, because we have seen as journalists, we have seen firsthand um, on videos uh, circulating at that time how how these militia would actually deal with with journalists in Iraq. So we would prefer to actually kill ourselves than actually end up being tortured by them.
1: And how had you decided you would do it?
0: Because I had a driver who was always with me and he was sometimes carrying a gun. So I always say like just shoot me in the head. I wanna make sure that I will be completely gone. I don't want to, I don't I don't want you to shoot me anywhere that I could actually still alive. So I'd rather just be gone straight away. But we kept saying to each other, "Listen, if one of us get you know get caught, the other will shoot the other in in the head."
1: And so you couldn't you couldn't get close to your fellow Iraqi journalists. What about the Western journalists you're working with?
0: I mean, the the Western journalists they were most of the time they are stuck in the compound. They barely left. So. You could see some actually on their desk doing online dating. The others were doing some shopping and booking their holidays. Um, some others were actually interested in us and asking us questions about our life and how does it feel to be in the field. So it was it was kind of a different um, different attitude towards us. So in a way, I guess they were closeted,
1: uh, whereas you. Didn't have an option, you had to go out back, you had to go home in the middle of this war.
0: Yes, I mean, that is, I think that was where our frustration was happening is that, you know, you see a foreign journalist coming for um, two or three weeks, and then after that, they are just planning for their holiday and their retreat to go back home and to go back to normality. And then we, when we ask them, like, Why do you have to do this retreat very quickly? And they say, because we are under a lot of stress. So we want to make sure that we, um, you know, our um, uh, mental well-being will always be be intact. And I I used to laugh. I say, I mean, I have no idea why you would be actually under stress while you're not even gone in the street and do anything on... Like, got your hand dirty anyway. It was most of the time us actually doing that job.
1: And what about your mental well-being when this was going on? Did you have access to therapists? Were there therapists there?
0: Nothing. Nothing. Okay, I'll tell you you something. It probably was a joke. I mean, when my friend told me about it, we literally acted as if it was a joke. So my friend went to a therapist and told him, I need, went to doctor and he told like a GP. In Iraq, an Iraqi Iraq, GP. In Iraq, Iraqi GP. And he said to him, doctor, I really think I am depressed. And the doctor laughed and he said, and what do you think, I'm not? <laughs> Why are you are here? Well, of course you're depressed, you're in Iraq. What do you expect? And he said, what am I gonna do? And just like, just drink some yoga and go to bed. <laughs> You'll be fine tomorrow. This is how we were dealing with trauma.
1: There was no escaping war.
0: No. You trapped. I was feeling like a mouse inside a cage.
1: Was leaving Iraq a possibility? By this point you were working with western media organizations. No. Why not?
0: It was there's no country would would accept you at that time most of the borders were shut because everyone was as scared of us as if we are a virus. So, um, so there was no way to go. So I had to stay, but I promised myself, this is not going to be the way I'm going to end. As I said, it was a film for me. And it was that a coping mechanism? Yeah. You know, when there is, there's no escape. You have to almost like draw an imaginary door on a wall and pretend this one day, this door is going to open. And so you have to create your own door. You have to make your own destiny. And what do you think now,
1: looking back, at how you were coping?
0: I, I have no idea how I did it. I keep thinking that it was impossible to actually survive every single thing that I have gone through at that time. Yeah. But that is but that is how, how you cope in war zones. I mean, it's just
1: all the more extraordinary because I know you so well, Mace. And I know that you are a naturally anxious person, which makes it even braver. I mean... You you are one of the bravest people I know. Thank you. I remember you telling me when I first met you and we were in Iraq together. We were driving along the airport road, which was then when the invasion happened and in the years after the invasion, it was the most, what, the most dangerous road in the country? Yes. It was called the road of death. And you lived just off the road of death. You lived on it. Yeah. You lived on the road of death. And I remember you telling me stories about everyday life, waking up in the morning.
0: I, I was living just off that road. And um, um, some nights in the middle of the night, you literally wake up by a bullet above your head. I mean, one night, I remember very well, I was asleep in my bed and then I see a light above my head and I just crawl from my bed and I jump and I go to my parents and I say, I I don't know what that light was. There was something in my room and they were like, there's no, there's not even electricity. What are you talking about? And I said, I don't know. I've seen a light above my head and they take the torch and they actually, go to my room and they see it was the curtain was burning three bullets has came just above my head and the curtain was just b- uh, burned and just the bullets were embedded in 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 the, the wall in front of me and if i have gone straight up prob- sat up yeah then the second bullet or the third bullet would be on my head so imagine it's like you can't even sleep in your own room there's no safe place ever. Did you have to sleep in that bed again? Yes. I had to go back to the same bed like nothing happened. Where where can I go? Did you sleep? No. Which is why I, I have anxiety is because mm. I I have severe insomnia because the night is always reminding me of war. Mm. And that is when the sirens happen, and that is when the bombing starts, and that's when the shooting happens. So I become alert, and um, I just expect that something is going to happen.
1: We'll continue Mesa's story on the next episode of The Line of Fire, where we'll hear how she survived a suicide bombing, ended up on a hit list, and how she finally escaped Iraq. In the meantime, you can find Mace's double Emmy award-winning documentary, Undercover with the Clerics, on BBC Online. And for US listeners, it's on PBS Frontline's website, where you can also find the documentaries we made together, Iraq's Assassins and Iraq Uncovered. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts. Until next time. The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai, and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Matt Raz and Richard Osman.